Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us Sam Thompson, based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Sam will share several of his more interesting transactional stories. In our first story, he shares how one of his clients made a decision that ended up costing his client a ton of money. Sometimes it just doesn't pay to be penny wise and pound foolish. Listen closely as Sam shares how a $35,000 decision ended up costing a business owner over $2 million in cold, hard cash at closing. Sam then shares how a customer concentration issue can kill a deal and how one of his clients with a $7 million deal that was all but done collapsed because of customer concentration. Then Sam shares how positioning a company with a strategic buyer can create a buyer's auction that can dramatically increase the value of a business. Finally, Sam shares how he sold his business and how a deal was structured that benefited all of the parties, creating a win-win situation. This is Marvin L. Storm with Business Exit Stories podcast. Today, we're with Sam Thompson. Sam, would you take a few minutes to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your business and where you're located? Sure. Well, hi, Marvin. Yeah, I've, uh, I have a business called Transitions in Business, and I'm an M&A advisor. I've uh, been doing this now for a little over seven years. And uh, previous to that, I had a conference and event planning business management business that I had for 29 years here in Minneapolis. And I ended up selling that to my uh, three partners back in uh, 2012. And I currently reside in downtown Minneapolis, and my office is in a suburb of Minneapolis called Edina. All right. Well, uh, you've obviously uh, had a lot of experiences on both sides of the table. So why don't we jump in and talk a little bit about some of those transactions that you've been involved in that presented their individual challenges to both the buyers and sellers. And maybe we can drag a few unique takeaways from these transactional stories. So why don't you share the first one with us today? Sure. I'd like to tell you about a business that I engaged with in uh, the summer of 2015. It was an autism therapy uh, practice. And the owner was a sole owner. And this particular uh, business owner had it for over 10 years. And uh, about two years before I met her, she had uh, moved out of Minnesota. She had moved to uh, Arizona. And uh, so she was still maintaining the business yet uh, was for the most part silent. She, she did some of the payroll work and that type of thing, but she really wasn't putting in that many hours. And she had a key employee that uh, was really running the business, a clinical supervisor. And they had a couple of 
offices up here in Minneapolis. So did this business have two offices, you know, probably had a fairly good revenue stream? It did, yeah. The uh, business was doing a little over $3 million in revenue, and I think the EBITDA was somewhere around six fifty, seven hundred uh, in EBITDA. So they were it was a nice business. And so when we went to market, we we got quite a response and uh, ended up uh, working with a buyer that was a strategic buyer. So was it only strategic buyers or did you have people in the business or perhaps financial buyers looking at it too? Yeah, I had all types. Yeah, I had private equity uh, individuals that saw it as an uh, opportunity as an owner operator that wanted to get their hands dirty. Uh, you know, and, and some that even it's interesting, some that even uh, maybe didn't have the, the medical background, but uh, had good management skills. So good, good response. Uh, the buyer we ended up going to letter of intent with really was the perfect buyer. And uh, they had a strong therapy business, but they did not offer autism. So it worked out real well to work this within their their offerings. And uh, so we went to letter of intent, uh, and, and the buyer was real easy to work with. Um, yet he did want, right at the beginning, to uh, talk with this uh, very important clinical supervisor. And he realized how key she was. And uh, typically, I like to put that off just a bit, get a little closer to closing before we engage with uh, any of the employees. Uh, and, and he insisted. He realized how important she was. And so they did meet. We agreed to that. Well, in this particular situation, when you have someone living out of state and you're not really being on site, that key person was really crucial to the entire success and profitability of the business. Is that sort of an accurate statement? Oh, it's very accurate. Yeah. If I was this buyer, I would have insisted too. It, it, it was a very important position. And, uh, and so they met and uh, it was uh, a good meeting. Buyer came back and, and said, yeah, I like this person. I think it, it'll work out well having her operate the two because uh, they wanted to maintain the locations at least for the first year or so, and uh, and so that went well as far as the buyer was happy. Uh, the key employee realized how key she was, and decided her seventy thousand dollars salary now needed to be one hundred and five thousand. And so she's telling this to my seller, and my seller comes back to me, and and I think there was a personality. Uh, conflict going on between the two, too, and I'm, I'm not but sure. But the personality conflict with, with the the owner of the business and the key employee, not the buyer, right? Right, exactly. The owner, um, I think when the owner would come into town, uh, the key employee would boss her around, and she didn't like that. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the, 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 uh, the owner came back to me and said, well, that's what she's asking. And, you know, it's, I'm selling the business. That's not my problem. And I said, well, you know, it really is. Uh, so I said, you know, uh, let me go back to the the buyer and explain what's going on and see what he says. And, and so he heard that. And, and just so you know, the offer 
that was made on this business was uh, $3 million cash at closing. $3 million cash at closing. And the only hurdle seems to be this uh, key employee wanting a raise. Yeah, that was it. And was there a lot of debt on the business? Was no. this going to net her close to $3 million? Yeah, it was. It, uh, she, it was a, a fairly clean company. Um, so, yeah, she would come close to, uh, you know, of course, after taxes and fees. But uh, uh, that was the price, $3 million. And uh, so I went back to the buyer, and, and the buyer said, well, you know, my offer wasn't based on this higher salary, so that's not going to work. Um, so I went back to the seller. I go, you know, it's an easy fix. Why don't you just give your key employee a $35,000 bonus if she stays on for a year? And, uh, you know, this way, you know, we'd be real upfront with the buyer. And, you know, this way it'll give the buyer an opportunity to have a year with her and to see if he eventually wants to uh, increase the pay or, or what he was going to do. Well, my seller would not do it. Uh, she just uh, did not want to pay that money. She, she thought that, you know, that money was hers and she wasn't going to do it. So the key employee ended up leaving and uh, uh, having that happen, the buyer backed off. He realized he wasn't going to buy a business without this person in place and said, you know, I'm, I really like the business, but you need to, to fill that position before I look at it again. So this was, you know, we started in the summer of 2015. I think this was about the fall time now of, of uh, 2015. So we really didn't have much of a business to sell and uh, put things on hold for a while until she was able to fill that position. And uh, she, she ended up filling it, but it took until, it took a while. I want to say it was uh, March of 2016 when she was able to replace that role. In the meantime, the numbers dropped uh, quite a bit. I, I, I want to say, you know, she was now, where EBITDA was closer to 700, it was probably half of that. And, uh, but, but she did find a good person and she, she had this person trained in fairly quickly. Uh, and so we re-engaged back with our um, original buyer that, that uh, we had the LOI with. And, uh, and he said, you know, this looks great. Uh, um, I, I, I like the business. I like her. He met with her, the, with the new clinical supervisor. I like her. He goes, but of course, your numbers have dropped. And so we ended up uh, renegotiating a price. Just out of curiosity, before you tell us the price here, I'm kind of curious what she had to pay that new employee that she went out and recruited and go through all the training. Oh, yeah. Good question. Yeah, good question. Uh, I want to say it was close to 90000 is is what she ended up paying. Um, so she, she didn't have to pay the one hundred five, but um, it was still more than the seventy. So anyway, we went back to the buyer and, and uh, uh, he was coming in around 500000 with the rest earn out. And, and he, was, he was putting, he was saying the earn out could go as high as $2.5 million. You know, not $3 million, but still, I, you know, $2.5 was the cap. So just so I get the context of how the restructured deal is shaping up, went from a $3 million cash offer to a $500,000 offer 
cash down. Started at 500 and uh, was able to get it up to a million. And, um, and that's my seller agreed to that, that she, she was ready to move on and said, you know what, I'll, I'll continue on and, and, uh, you know, he can have the business and I'll agree to that. But the sales price was 2.5 versus three. Right. Yeah. So that's what we valued the business at was 2.5. So a million cash at closing, uh, and then a million and a half, uh, earn out turned out to be a seven year earn out, which is usually longer than what you see. Um, and it was based on net profit, less I paid, paid annually, less um, 200000 and then 50% of what was left after that. So, um, in, you know, as a uh, M&A advisor, we're, for the most part, paid at closing a uh, percentage. And I had tried to work it so that uh, I would just, you know, if, if we're talking a million and then potentially two and a half, I was trying to come up with a number somewhere in the middle of that where, I would, where I'd base my pay. And my client uh, would not agree to that. She said, no, you're, you're going to get paid when I get paid. So I've actually had access to the financials now for the last three years um, to just see how the business has been going. Um, the first year, 20, because um, it started in 2017, because we closed the end of 2016. So it took a year and a half to sell it. Um, the first year, 2017, she didn't see anything in earnout. <clears throat> And then the, the second year, um, I want to say she saw about 60000 And uh, 2019, I still have not seen the final numbers on that. Um, I've been updated with the financials, and I know the year's been pretty good. But I'd be surprised if she saw more than 100 um, for 2019. Well, this is an interesting story on a number of fronts. I mean... Even an earnout structure was based on net profit, which is kind of can be an elusive figure on how net profit is created and monitored. So that creates its own problems. And, uh, but I think the most fascinating thing is as far as a key takeaway from this story is that for $35,000, as I understand it, and a $3 million cash deal, which is about 1% of the total sales price, they forwent all of this cash. I mean, you're talking about a $2 million delta. Am I understanding that correct? Yeah, you are. And uh, it made no sense at all at the time either. <laughs> and she had to pay the new employee $90,000. And so that's only a $15,000 difference. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah, I mean, the, the lesson learned is take care of your employees. And uh, it, it always is a touchy situation as to, you know, should you tell your employees, you know, when do you bring them in? But I think if you really have, like you'd mentioned earlier, if you really have some key employees, um, bring them in and work out some kind of retention uh, payment bonus plan. Uh, as part, Let them know that, you know, you need their help. You valued them. Uh, you'd love to see them um, stay on with the new business. And uh, if you do, you know, I'll make sure I'll take care of you and even structure it where it's, you know, maybe they get some type of payment six months into it and then another after six months. And, and then the nice thing about bringing employees in too uh, is that they can help you sell the business. You know, they can be part of the management presentation. Yeah, the key takeaway here, again, is really uh, lock down your key employees and uh, treat them well, pay them well. It's only an investment in the future. 
And in this case, it was an expensive learning lesson for that owner to forego all of that cash. Well, let's move on to the next uh, transaction here and talk a little bit about something else that uh, presented some problems and challenges for you. Okay, the next business I'd like to talk about would be an advertising agency, uh, mainly digital advertising that I worked with when I first uh, got into the M&A industry. And that was uh, about seven years ago, excuse me, about six years ago. And uh, uh, good business. They uh, ended up having a valuation done by uh, one of the companies that's out there that they they do seminars, and then after the seminar, they charge you a a, a fee of like thirty five thousand dollars to uh, value your business. And so, I had uh, gone under contract with this business, and they had shared that valuation with me. <clears throat> Excuse me, and the valuation came in around 15 million. And uh, at the time I was working with a, uh, another uh, M&A firm. And, and so I had uh, shared it with the owner of that business and, and said, yeah, I just, I'm not seeing how they're getting 15 million. And we had thought that the most that this business could uh, entertain would be maybe 10 million. And so uh, we liked the business. It was a good business. Uh, you know, we shared that with the owners that we didn't think they would get 15 million. That would be closer to 10. And so they said, yeah, well, let's go to market, see what happens. And so we did and uh, brought in all types of uh, buyers, good buyers, private equity. Uh, we ended up uh, signing a letter of intent with a strategic buyer, which was actually one of their vendors. And uh, it, it seemed to be a really good fit. Now, one thing I need to tell you about my advertising agency is they had one customer that was 90% of their business. So highly concentrated customer concentration. Have you ever seen any of your clients that you've represented with that high of a concentration? I mean, that is off the charts. Uh, never. And, and Marvin, I don't know if I would ever take one on again. <laughs> um, but this, this particular uh, buyer saw that it fit in well with their portfolio of customers and uh, you know, it was a well-known company here in the Twin Cities, uh, you know, and, and so to the buyer, it, it, they weren't as, they were concerned, but they thought they could make it work. So we ended up uh, getting a letter of intent with them um, and just, so you know, their offer, uh, and we had other offers that we were entertaining, but they were the best offer and uh, their offer was $7 million. So it was even much lower than what we thought they could potentially get, but uh, they they were ready to sell and they agreed to it. Uh, of course, they were a little disappointed. It wasn't the fifteen million they thought they were going to get. Uh, but anyway, we moved along, went through all all the due diligence, and uh, we were about two weeks from closing. And I remember it well. We had a conference call. I had the uh, sellers and their attorney on the call and the buyer and their attorney on the call. And we had agreed to everything in the purchase agreement. All set to go. Everybody was giddy. It was, you know, two weeks from closing. And then that weekend, 
a really unpleasant article came out in advertising age about my client's number one customer. The one they have 90% concentration with. Yeah, the 90% concentration, saying they were having financial issues, that they were laying people off. So, of course, on that Monday, my buyer calls and, and uh, shared that article with me that they, he, you know, he saw it or the board saw it uh, and the deal's off. And, uh, and it was one of those situations where it was a firm, we're not moving forward. And uh, so, and that was, you know, within the first year of getting into the business. And, and I, I've learned that it's never over until uh, it's never done until the money's in the bank. Um, so that, that was a disappointment for everybody. So just out of curiosity, were you able to sell the business in the future? No, I, I do stay in touch with them. And uh, they're still working on their business. I mean, they're, the lesson they learned, obviously, was to uh, diversify their customer base. And, and I think the last time I talked to them, they got that number one. They still have that customer. They got it down to about 70%, but um, still way too high. I mean, you want to you wanna be you know, 10 to 15% with your number one customer. So uh, uh, they... Uh, are not have not sold as far as I know. Well, I guess the big takeaway here for our audience is if you have a high customer concentration, when it comes time to exit, that's going to be a major deal point, and uh, you will depress your valuation if you can even get a buyer to the table with a high concentration of customers. I know you'll be very difficult to get it financed because banks will not approve or SBA will not approve that high of a concentration anywhere close to that. So. Well, interesting story. As the host of Business Exit Stories, I have the opportunity to interview guests and share stories of entrepreneurs that have different types of business exits and sometimes quite dramatically different. Some that are successful and quite frankly, some that are not so successful. One of the common themes with these exit stories is that entrepreneurs spend years, if not decades, in building a business, but spend very little time thinking about how they will exit their business at some point. Why is this? Well, what I've concluded is this. Because these entrepreneurs are so busy running their business, they believe they don't have the time to think about how they will exit their business. Because they have their heads down and are focused on building up their business and scaling it. Why in the world would they be thinking about selling their business now? I will think about that later. Generally, this is really a bad decision, as the exit stories you hear on these podcasts sort of demonstrate. As I've thought about the dramatically different exit outcomes that these entrepreneurs achieve, I began to catalog the tactics and strategies that facilitate successful and profitable business exits. Later this year, I will be publishing a book presented in a case study format that any entrepreneur can read and learn about and understand successful business exit strategies, and that if they put these into practice, they will prepare their business for a successful and profitable exit. In writing this book, I decided to use a parachute metaphor. Think about this. Pilots don't pack their parachute when their engines are on fire. They have their parachutes packed and ready to go when they need it. Likewise, successful business owners should pack their parachute 
and have it ready far in advance of when they need it, because sometimes they will have to exit their business unexpectedly. To get a copy of my upcoming book, Pack Your Parachute, The Strategies Behind Successful and Profitable Business Exits, go to my website, businessexitstories.com forward slash book. Again, that's businessexitstories.com forward slash book. And if you register now for the pre-publication edition, I will send you a discount code that you can use on Amazon for a 90% off reward and discount for just being a Business Exit Stories podcast listener. So get your book now. Let's move on to some transactions you've been involved with that uh, maybe have a little bit different outcome than these last two you shared with me. Okay, I'd like to talk about a business in Minnesota. It was uh, south of the Twin Cities, and it was an it's an explosives business and uh, real nice business. What they uh, end up doing is they will go into these quarries and uh, uh, explode these these quarries to break up the rocks that are used for the roads or whatever else they need them for, and that's really their specialty. They uh, they go in and, and these quarries uh, used to be used to do these themselves and uh, they just ended up not wanting to be part of, of that doing that type of business just because of the liability uh, and you really need to be specialized in that area so uh, nice business and it was one owner he uh, it's a family business where he, uh, the one owner, had bought it from his, his dad. And so I was dealing with just the one person. And uh, we ended up uh, going to market. And, you know, because it was such a specialized business, it's, uh, you really, we really had to be selective on who we were going to approach. And, you know, we looked at our database of, of buyers and, uh, you know, we looked at our, uh, various uh, resources where we could pull pull from. It was uh, we. I had valued this business right around, and it had some real estate to it. So I had valued it uh, right around uh, two and a half million. And uh, we we finally, I, I finally said to my client, I go, you know, I think we just need to go after your competitors. And, uh, and and see if, if we can find a buyer there. So he had, he gave me a list of uh, the ones he knew of that was about seven or eight uh, around the upper Midwest that we thought would be a good fit. And uh, we ended up with two of them, uh, both out of Iowa, that uh, were extremely interested. And we could tell they were extremely interested. And this is exactly what you want uh, as M&A advisors to, uh, you know, to, to play off of these two. And, uh, you know, we certainly let them know there was another buyer that was interested. And so uh, we ended up, uh, you know, going back and forth and, you know, of course saying, well, you got to do better type of thing and, and uh, ended up uh, signing an LOI with, with one of them. And I, I think the final, uh, price uh, instead of two point five, got it up to I think we we're about three million. So uh, my my seller, of course, was very happy, and you know he wasn't all that old. He was uh, I want to say mid to late fifties, but uh, and I had actually uh, received this lead 
from his financial advisor. And, uh, you know, this particular seller just was done working. He just didn't want to do it anymore. And his financial advisor was telling him, you know, you're, you know, if you can get that, that kind of price, uh, you should be fine. So it turned, so really it turned out well to, uh, to, to make sure you're engaging. And, you know, we always say, if you have one buyer, you really don't have a buyer. So when you went out to these eight competitors in the format you approached them on was just kind of an open, no price listed, and you went out to, to try to create an auction type of environment for these competitors to evaluate the business and come back with their best offer? Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, we approach them with a blind profile. We we give them the uh, confidential information memorandum or the SIM, and uh, they have everything they need to know. Uh, and uh, we, we, we tell them that, you know, tell us what you think it's worth. What, what are you willing to pay for this? And what did the initial offers come in as the process got started? Was it a close to the $2.5 million or was it higher? You know, it was. It was. I, I was. I think between the two, it was you know somewhere between two point two and two point six, somewhere in that area. And so, sir, aware that there are other people at the table, and you create that dynamic of urgency and the fear of missing out, and they obviously understood the business because that's the business that they were in, and so. They kept bidding up. How many rounds did you go through back and forth? Oh, I want to say it. Uh, it it was uh, not that many. Uh, you know, they both had made offers, uh, indicated to both that uh, you know you needed to do better. Uh, I, I think one of them uh, didn't didn't really move much. I remember they're they're kind of bickering on the the real estate price, which was the smaller piece of it. And, um, and then the one that ended up getting the business, uh, uh, came in around the, the 3 million and, um, they really, uh, geographically wanted to be, uh, in this location in Minnesota. So, um, and they, and, and just see, yeah, they had hired a broker matter of fact. So I was dealing with, uh, their broker and that was representing them and the other party that didn't get it uh, did not have a broker. Well, you can see the power of two dynamics going on here, the power of an auction and the power of a strategic buyer that places value on the location and the type of business and all the other strategic advantages that appeal to them specifically. And they can put a high value on those strategic initiatives. Exactly. Yeah, you said it well. Well, let's move on. You mentioned earlier that you sold a business before getting into the mergers and acquisition field. Um, why don't we take a few minutes and just chat about that business and uh, what type of business it was and what your motivations were and how long you were in the business and what kind of exit did you structure for yourself? Sure. Yeah, I had founded Metro Connections uh, in 1984. A conference and event management business uh, in the Minneapolis area. In in Minneapolis, yes. Started by myself, and I remember, uh, you know, of course, when you start a business organically, uh, you're always struggling. And I was always talking to as many advisors as I could find. And I remember talking to a gentleman from Score. He had owned a business, and uh, and and gave me some what what I found out to be very good advice which uh, was don't be so concerned about holding on to all of your shares that if you find good people, good, strong people, uh, let them come in and own some of the equity. And, and, uh, 
and, and so I eventually did that as I grew the business. And uh, about four years into it, found a really strong person from the hotel industry that was a tremendous salesperson. And he came in and, and his first year, he just brought in all kinds of business for me. And I could tell he was somebody that I didn't want to lose. And matter of fact, it was my brother-in-law. And uh, so we ended up structuring a contract where he could buy in every year for, for so many shares. And uh, eventually he brought his brother in and then we brought a, a another person in. So there was uh, four of us throughout the years, throughout the, the 29 years that uh, owned this business. And, you know, we, we really grew it big uh, to uh, eventually 16 million. Uh, we take on events you know, such as uh, the Final Four when there's in the Twin Cities or the Super Bowl and work the logistics for, for the uh, Minneapolis and working with security and uh, putting on uh, major conferences uh, with registration for, you know, uh, companies such as Target and uh, 3M and such. Um, so in 2010, uh, I started, you know, thinking, this is 27 years having the business, uh, had been through a couple of crises, uh, you know, such as 9-11 and then the 2008 uh, Great Recession. And, uh, you know, you go through that as business owners and, and you're, you're thinking, you know, uh, how much longer do I want to have all my net worth tied up in my business? And, you know, when should I take chips off the table? And, and, and I, quite honestly, I was getting bored. Um, and I see that now when, when I'm dealing with business owners, um, where they're just burnt out and they've just done it enough and, and they want to move on. And so I, I started looking into what would I want as my next career, uh, you know, search the internet and, uh, so I am an advisors and ended up, uh, going to, uh, a couple of conferences, the International Business Brokers Association and M&A Source, and, and really liking what I saw. So I, I realized that's what I wanted to do next. So in about 2011, I went to uh, my partners and I said, you know, um, I, I, I think I've, I've done enough and uh, I'm, I'm ready to leave. And why don't we sell the business? And they, you know, I was in my, my mid-50s. They were... Uh, in their forties and, and they're, they're looked at me like I was crazy. And they said, no, we're, we're having too much fun. We, you know, we're making good money. And, and we really were, we were doing well at the time. The business is, is doing as well as ever. And um, it still has been. And so we ended up, I said, okay, fine. If you don't want to sell, then you'll have to buy me out. So we ended up structuring a, a deal. Uh, originally we wanted to work with an SBA loan but uh, with, the, with the three uh, partners, one of them had more assets than the other, and it just he wasn't comfortable taking on that exposure. And they looked at the SBA costs, and, and they just said, no, we're not interested in doing that. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that, because that's kind of a relevant point for partnerships and co-owners when you're talking about SBA. Why don't you talk a little bit about that feature in the SBA documentation that requires, you know, the type of collateralization and how that works and why uh, one business owner or shareholder with a disproportionate share of assets might balk at that. 
Well, yeah, I mean, the way, the way SBA is, is structured, it's the SBA is guaranteeing the loan. The loan is, is made by the bank. And um, I believe it's 75% is, is what the SBA will guarantee. And so, uh, of course, if, if the business goes under, um, you know, the, the, the bank gets uh, the, the business, which they don't want. But then they also, uh, there's also collateral that they look at and, um, uh, you know, they look at your home and what other personal assets you have. And, and just the way it was structured with those three, the, the one owner was going to be exposed more than the others. And he, he just didn't want to do that. So the SBA is going to require collateralization and they take the collateral that's available. And the, in this particular situation, the collateral that was available was primarily with one of the shareholders exactly and that's not fair to him Which he didn't yeah. like and he and he was that yeah and, and he was uh when you look at percentages of ownership he had the second highest percentage too and so he just um didn't want to go along with it so and i wanted to move on um so i i said okay great um and this started at the uh, we ended up doing the transaction at the end of 2012 and i'd started this in 2011 so so it took a year, uh, just going back and forth and trying to figure out how we're going to do this. And it, it ended up that um, I was the bank. And we did a promissory note for seven years. And at the time we agreed to it, I wasn't real excited about it. But the more I looked at it, um, you know, I trusted these guys. I believed in them. They, they helped me grow the business to where it was. So I, it, it would have been nice with an SBA loan to get all that money up front. But uh, after having gone through it, uh, it turned out much better for me. Uh, they ended up paying off the note in five years. And uh, I, was, I ended up getting interest um, beyond the, the price that we agreed to. So in, in they, um, in, in, you know, part of it was, I don't know if they fully understood that by me leaving, um, that I'm not getting distributions anymore. I, of course, was the highest salary. All my benefits went away. So, uh, and they, you know, we had worked it, uh, uh, or I had actually worked. I was slowly removing myself from the business. So I was able to have people fill into the different roles that I was taking on. I was overseeing finance and uh, HR and one of the departments I was uh, tied into. So slowly I was getting people to take on these responsibilities. So I had removed myself from the business, uh, but they still weren't real comfortable with me leaving. But eventually after the deal was done and after about a year where they, they saw, Hey, we don't, cause they didn't replace me. Then, you know, we don't have to pay all this money out. It worked out real well for them. So it worked out well for both of us. It, it, it really, really did. So you mentioned that one of your responsibilities was HR. How many employees did you have? We had all total with part-time 150 employees. Uh, I think at the time we had uh, maybe about 60 full-time. So that type of business, you have a lot of part-time employees. You have casino dealers and set up people that are out there putting up props and tour guides and, you know, and those 
all our part-time employees. So it'd be interesting to share a little bit with us about how you went through the valuation process. Did you get an outside paid appraisal or how, how did that work? Well, what we ended up doing, because uh, we, we had always had our accountant engaged in valuing the business every year because uh, because the, the, the uh, other three partners were obtaining ownership. So um, we ended up going to our accountant and saying, you know, give us uh, the most updated valuation. But I, I knew that typically accountants are a little on the conservative side. Um, so we ended up going to a broker and paying for uh, what's called a broker's opinion of value. And typically uh, you're, you're going to find that those values are, are higher than what an accountant will provide. And we agreed as the four of us, we said, let's do that. Let's take, take those two evaluations and um, take the average of the two. And that's what will be the, the price we'll, we'll work with, the value. So for them, if we're deconstructing how this deal was put together, it was kind of a win-win situation. First of all, I guess you're really dealing from a, a position of trust that you don't normally have in a third-party transaction. I mean, you knew, as you stated, you knew these folks. Uh, they had helped you build the business. So you had a high degree of trust in their capability to continue on after you left. So that's a critical component of it. Uh, you also had almost a self-funding type of mechanism here for your partners to buy you out because I guess you were the CEO at the time. I mean, you were the majority shareholder. I was, yes. And so I assume that your salary was at the top of the range for all of the employees. You had all of your benefits. You were getting distributions because of your ownership share, uh, which was disproportionate to the others. You had removed yourself from the business, so you weren't there all the time. So your actual day-to-day -day contribution was less than what they were doing because they were working, you know, in the business on the day-to-day -day basis. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. I'm just looking at it from their perspective. I mean, they can take off of the books, uh, the CEO's salary, all the benefits that are associated with that. They're not going to have to replace you. I assume they didn't replace you anyway. They did not. So there's hundreds of thousands of dollars there of annual compensation that's not going to be paid. There's the distribution of net profits that are now going to accrue to them. So they're going to have extra money available for distributions. So when you boil it down and then you pay this out over a period of years, and I assume the interest rate was a competitive interest rate that they were paying. It wasn't abnormally high, right? Yeah, I want to say it was uh, two points over prime. So it wasn't, yeah, it was very reasonable. Yeah, that's traditional. Yeah, that's about what you would pay with the SBA or any other commercial lender, you know. So uh, there wasn't all the underwriting costs. There weren't all the costs associated with the SBA. There were, I assume that the collateral for the business for this transaction was the business, right? It wasn't yep. the personal real estate or other assets that they had. Absolutely. So that was a, that was a good thing for them. So, I mean, you, you, you kind of look at this. Yeah, I would have been nice to walk away with a big check at closing, but 
Here's a situation where you're getting interest. They're not having to pay your salary for you not being there. Not a bad deal on their side of the table, a kind of a good deal on your side of the table. You trust each other. Kind of a win-win situation. So this really, really turned out to be very solid transaction. And you say it was a seven-year payout and they paid it out in five? Correct. Yeah, it worked out well. So I guess when you look at these type of transactions on owner carryback, generally, I mean, we had an owner carryback in one of your earlier stories that it's probably not going to work out all that well for the owner that sold. But in this particular situation, it's probably going to work out and did work out very well. Yeah, it really did. It did really work out well for them, worked out well for me. Uh, you know, when you when you're own a business like that, you, you're the founder and you have a lot of pride in, in what you've grown. And and I know business owners, we all think we're so important. But um, after I left, uh, they eventually got the business up to $20 million in revenues. So I look at that and go, okay, maybe I really wasn't needed. So are you telling me they threw the dead wood over the side and the business grew, huh? Yeah, there you go. That's what happened. Well, these have been great stories. I really appreciate you taking the time to share transactions with us here today and even a little personal story here on how you were able to exit your own business and some of the takeaways on trusted relationships and creating win-win situations for everyone involved. As we wrap it up here today, if someone out there in our audience wants to reach out and connect with you, what would be the best way for them to do that? Uh, probably a couple ways. If they want to connect with me on LinkedIn, that would be fine. Or they certainly can send me an email. I'm fine with that. It's uh, S Thompson, T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, at transitionsib.com. Uh, that's T-R-A-N-S-I-T-I-O-N-S-I is India, India, B is in bravo.com. All right. Well, again, thanks for being here today. And until next time, where we're going to share some more stories on business exit stories about how to position your business and some of the takeaways you'll need when you get ready to exit your business. Sounds great, Marvin. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning. Remember to get your pre-publication edition of my new book, Pack Your Parachute, The Strategies Behind a Successful and Profitable Business Exit. Simply go to businessexitstories.com forward slash book. Again, that's businessexitstories.com forward slash book. If you register now for my pre-publication edition, I will send you a discount code that you can use on Amazon for a whopping 90% off copy of your book as a reward for being a Business Exit Stories podcast listener.